Good morning again. Today we start a new series, Angry Jesus. Angry Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. We got a lot of different Jesuses running all over the place today. You go to the Christian bookstore and you can find, you know, Happy Jesus, Meek Jesus, Shepherd Jesus, Jesus with the lambs, Jesus playing soccer with the kids, Jesus playing football. I imagine there's a lacrosse Jesus where that's popular. We've got Jesus holding up the sinner and the guy's got the hammer still in his hand. Uh, we even, if you Google boxing Jesus, yes, yes, friends, for those of you that are really connected to boxing and Jesus all at the same time, you can find that as well. There is boxing Jesus. But the Jesus we don't see a lot of is angry Jesus. You know, you go to the Christian bookstore or you look online and you say, you know, I'd like a statue of Jesus looking really mad. Uh, they don't they don't stock that. You know, they probably could order it for you, you know, if you had enough money, but they probably don't keep one of those things on hand. You know, Angry Jesus isn't real popular. Uh, and it's not probably a series I would have picked myself either if we're going to be real honest with each other. And, and I mean, we should if we can't be honest in church. Where can we be honest? Um, but last week, last week, last year, when I asked, as I do every year, what, what do you think we need to preach about this upcoming year? Um, well, before we get to what they said, um, I just, just so you know, every year here at Bowling Green Christian Church, we, we, do, we will do one of these series every year. We will always go through a New Testament epistle. I just want you to know that. We will always go through a New Testament epistle, sort of just line by line, looking at God's Word. What does it have to say? We will always do that. We will always go through a series out of the Gospels, either an entire Gospel line by line or a, a collection of teachings, maybe all of the kingdom parables of Jesus. We will just go through all of those so that way God's Word can just sort of speak to us through the Gospels. We will always do an Old Testament series, whether it's an Old Testament book. Uh, last year we did a collection of Psalms, um, you know, a life, maybe a character study of like, say, the life of David or something like that. We will always go through the Old Testament. Uh, for some of our series. And we will also always do a series on family, whether it's marriage or parenting or relationships. Or some of you may remember we did modern families when we talked about families not that long ago. We'll always do one of those because I think that's a good way for us to preach and let God's Word sort of speak to us naturally. But I always try to ask this question, what are the things that you want to hear about you feel like we've not talked about lately? Maybe the, you, you need to hear. Um, and last year, the number one response was, you, you probably guessed it by now. Angry Jesus. It was angry Jesus. Yeah, it's no surprise. But that was it. I mean, it surprised me. Like, I had more people come and say, could you talk about Jesus getting mad? And some of them had a smile on their face, and some of them didn't. Um, could we talk about that? And I thought, well, I suppose we could. We could talk about angry Jesus. And so, I'll tell you, I, I had some fear and trepidation coming to this study. I've enjoyed it. Um, and I think that you will, too, as we look at Jesus. And what are the things that makes him angry? And I will warn you, they may surprise you. Jesus's anger is often directed at people you may not think Jesus's anger would be directed at. And you may find, you may find it kind of convicting. Uh, this morning, I simply want us to sort of introduce this idea that Jesus does, in fact, get angry. Because we know that he does. Jesus gets angry. Uh, Jesus is angry at as far as I can tell, about three groups of people. Uh, the first group of people Jesus gets angry with are the disobedient. 
Uh, he does. He gets angry with those people. If you look in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus here is calling out these cities, the city of Chorazin, the city of Bethsaida, and these are cities just... For those of you that don't have your Galilee geography you know, readily at hand, these are the cities where Jesus did the most of his miraculous power, the ministry deeds. It's where he did most of his teaching in his Galilee ministry. And so up to this point, Jesus has spent more time in and around the area of Chorazin, in and around the area of Bethsaida, and he's saying, listen, for all of the deeds of power, for all of the teaching that you have seen, you have not repented. It's not to say that nobody repented. Surely somebody did, and several people did. But the city as a whole did not, and Jesus pronounces on them. He says, woe to you. He says, because if if what I did there, if we had done those miraculous deeds, and if we'd had those teachings in the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon who do not even know the name of God, if we had done those deeds there, They would have repented, they'd have been on their knees in sackcloth and ashes, and their lives would be changed. But you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, are disobedient in your unrepentance. And Jesus gets angry at them. He says, woe to you. Now, I know that we don't use the word woe that much. Now, we do use it like maybe in traffic, like, whoa, buddy, slow down. It's spelled differently, okay? I don't know how to spell the whoa. I don't know how to spell that. Woe, W-O-E, as in Jesus saying woe in the New Testament. Uh, in the Greek, it sounds like this. It sounds like ooh-I, ooh-I on you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. That's Greek for woe on you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. We don't use that word a lot. And it's interesting in the Greek. If you look at sort of how do you translate what is an interjection here, literally translated, it probably means horror. So Jesus is like saying, oh, the horror that is going to come on you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. It's a strong word. It means extreme hardship. If you want to get a good biblical word picture of what does the word woe mean, when Jesus says woe, what does he mean? Go to the book of Revelation, because there's three woes that show up there. We'll look at only the first in Revelation 9. Here's what happens, the woe of Revelation chapter 9. It says that there is an angel who comes and he opens the door to the bottomless pit. Okay, we all have doors like that. I have one. It goes underneath my house. It swings this way and it opens into a crawl space full of spiders and nasty things. Okay, and the door, you know, the angel comes and he grabs a hold of the door and it makes that creaking noise. And he opens up this door. And if you've ever been in the crawl space of your house, you know how terrifying this is. And he opens up the crawl space of the world, of the universe. Seriously. It's a bottomless shaft, the text tells us. And as soon as he opens it, out comes just this billow of smoke. And that's not the scary part. What happens after that is the scary part. It says that in this woe, that there is a locust flock or herd or swarm that comes out of here. And here's how these locusts are described. They look like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. And the literal hell's angels are coming out of the door 
of the bottomless pits. It says they had scales like iron breastplates and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. That's the first woe. The other two get worse. Seriously. And Jesus says, woe to you. Maybe the reason we translate that in English as woe is because when you read about these locusts, all you say is, woe. Woe. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming. He says, woe to you, you disobedient in Chorazin and Bethsaida. Because if I had done these works someplace else, these people would have found salvation and deliverance. But here your heart is so hard and you have rejected me. Woe to you. So Jesus is in fact angry at the disobedient we see. But that's actually the smallest group of people Jesus gets angry with. There's another group that Jesus gets angry with. Jesus gets angry at the complacent. Jesus gets angry at complacent people. Luke chapter 6, verse 24 says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus calls out people that are full of apathy. And he says, woe to you. He calls out the rich here. He says, you're so comfortable in life that you don't hunger or thirst for me. Woe to you. You're so satisfied with this life. Woe to you because you won't find satisfaction in the next. Woe to you. Woe to you, rich man, who Lazarus was at your gate in the the, the story that Jesus tells. And he says, this man was outside starving to death at your driveway. And you drove past him and he died. Woe to you who did not care. Woe to you. Woe to you in the synagogue. Jesus sees people in the synagogue. And this man, they've brought him in sort of as a freak sideshow because he's got a shriveled hand. And this is bait for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, to to lead him into a a conflict with the authorities. And Jesus looks around at all their faces, and they clearly don't care about this man. And Jesus says, woe to you. He's angry. Jesus gets angry at the complacent because he cares so much about people that when his people ignore those that are in need, he gets angry. He gets angry. The third group, however, is the group that Jesus gets angry with the most, and that's the hypocrites. Jesus gets angry at the hypocrites almost two to one in the Gospels. Of all the texts that Jesus is angry with somebody in the Gospels, this outnumbers everything else by about double. Luke chapter 19, verse 54 through 56, it says this, Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus here is calling out the temple authorities, the priests, the Sadducees, the people that are supposed to be running God's house of prayer, a house of prayer for all of the nations. And what they have done here is set up a a livestock yard, an auction block, a a gift shop, and a hundred other things right there in in the court of the Gentiles 
which was the only place you could put something like that by the temple. It was a great place, you know, market-wise speaking, because everybody had to walk by it. But the problem was that the Gentiles couldn't pray because the Gentiles couldn't go into the temple. And so you've got a guy like in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch, who travels all the way up to Jerusalem from Ethiopia via chariot. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem to pray to God, the best he can do is pray in the middle of a livestock yard. And Jesus says, woe to you who would hinder people from praying. And in his anger, he drives out these people. He drives out the hypocrites who are supposed to be maintaining a place of prayer. And they've turned it into a profit-making enterprise. And I'll tell you, friends, as you look at how often Jesus gets angry with the hypocrites and what he says about the hypocrites, you will start to see that some of those things sound suspiciously like us today we're in the church. We've been in the church for a long time. We've become so comfortable with things. We've become complacent. And I'll tell you, I think the twist in all of this is that Jesus' anger is not for the sinner. He has grace that abounds for the sinner, but his patience is so short for the religious who lack grace. And it is so often the people who've been in the church for so long who have forgotten what it means to be saved. These are the people that Jesus has no patience for. But here's the thing about Jesus' anger is that Jesus' anger is, in fact, good, and it brings about righteousness. Jesus' anger brings about righteousness. We might view this temple tantrum. <laughs> you see what I did there? I took temper tantrum. I put it with temple. Thank you. Okay. All right. It came to me later. Um, it's not... We're moving on. You, you might view the temper tantrum that Jesus had in the temple as a problem, but, but it's a good thing. As a fact, when Jesus gets angry, people praise him. L- let's look at Revelation chapter 19. Here we go. We've got the final judgment here. And what do people looking at it say? They say, hallelujah. They don't say, oh, the horror. They don't say, whoa, what's happening? They say, hallelujah. They say, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they said, hallelujah. The smoke goes up from them forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And I would just ask you this question. How does that compare with your anger? Like when you get angry, do people like stop and go, amen, Hallelujah. Praise God. I, you know, in your anger, I see Jesus. When you get mad, I see God. You're, you being angry at me makes me feel a little bit closer to Jesus. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. At least not in my experience. It, it doesn't. Uh, often we don't get thanked for being angry. Uh, our anger rarely produces righteousness or, or good things. And that's why Scripture warns us about being angry. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, uh, it says this. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Why do we put these two together? It's because so often our anger goes with sin. So often when we get angry, we sin. Which is why James tells us this in James chapter 1. He says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger, that's my anger and your anger, does not produce God's 
righteousness. When we get angry, it doesn't produce God's righteousness. This is why in Romans chapter 12, we are told that we should leave room for God's anger. Because when you get angry, what follows afterwards is an apology. But when God gets angry, what follows afterwards is praise. And and Paul in Romans says, listen, you want to get angry at all these things, but really what you should do is you should leave room for God's anger. Your anger isn't going to quite get you where you want to be. But if you let God get angry about this, praise is going to come. And so we're challenged to let God be angry because it brings about righteousness. It's God that judges the sinful, and it's God that that makes the wrongs right. And yet as we think about this, and we maybe think about the last time we got angry, and we think about maybe the last time we sinned, we start to realize that, you know, we aren't perfect. None of us in this room are perfect. We're full of sin, and we've done things that have hurt others, and we've done things that have been misunderstood by others, and we've even done some of those things on purpose, and we've caused people pain, and we realize that we probably are on the receiving end of God's anger, at least from time to time. Which is why I'm so thankful that Jesus' primary role in Scripture is to save us from God's wrath. You know, the, the, the image that I'm most drawn to in Scripture is this image of Jesus who has come as an intercessor between us and God. And it is Him who has taken away that wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 says this. It says, For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is for all of us. This is why in the book of Timothy, Paul says this. He says, listen, God is waiting because He does not want anybody to perish. When God, when Jesus describes hell in the book of Matthew, and when hell is described in the book of Revelation, it says there is a lake of fire that was made for the devil and his angels. It was never made for people. Never made for people. We were not made to obtain that. We were not made destined for that. We were made to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus that enables us to live without fear of punishment, Jesus shows us God's perfect love. We see in 1 John chapter 4, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. This morning, I know we've talked about God's anger, and I will tell you what I hope. I hope that you have come to realization or or reminded of the seriousness of your sin. Sin is serious, and it invokes the wrath of God when we live in disobedience to Him. But for those of you that are found in Christ, I pray that you are also reminded of the incredible grace that God has shown to you. And you say, you know what? God was angry at my disobedience. But in Christ, He's filled with love towards me. And this morning, if you've not received that gift of Jesus, I pray that it would lead you to the forgiveness that comes only through Him. Friends, let's be honest. We all have a woe pronounced on us. This is why Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Whoa. 
but we can obtain forgiveness, salvation through faith in Christ. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. And so this morning we have a choice, and Jesus lets us choose. Jesus says, do you want grace now or judgment later? That's your choice. Now, even saying that, I'll tell you, it sounds kind of flippant, doesn't it? It sounds sort of like, you know, if you choose grace now, God will just kind of like wink at your sin. You know, you're either judged justly for it later or because you know somebody, you know his son, God will sort of overlook your sin and it's not accounted for. But the truth is that it's much more powerful and profound because God does not wink at sin. God does not sort of scoot it under the rug and say, well, we won't worry about this. You're friends. First Peter tells us something different. It says, As Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Your sin has been paid for. It's just been paid for by Christ. And so really the choice is, do you want to pay for your sins or do you want to let Jesus pay for your sins? Because Christ has earned our acceptance. He has earned our forgiveness through His work on the cross. And all that remains for you... And all that remains for me is to accept him. Jesus, in his own words, in Luke chapter 12, says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. People ask, you know, why do we do a public confession of faith? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because Jesus said, if you publicly confess me, I'll publicly confess you. It's a free gift. Now, I I think sometimes as we think about this forgiveness of sins, we we sort of think, well, maybe God can't forgive me. And maybe, maybe like I'm an exception to the rule. Or perhaps my sin is an exception to the rule of sins. Or maybe it's me and my sin combination. It's sort of this perfect combination that God cannot forgive. But friends, this isn't God winking at sin. There's a righteous transaction that's taken place here. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, writes about this just forgiveness of God. I want to read this to you. It says, The Apostle John writes that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, 1 John 1, 9. It doesn't say that if we confess our sins, God forgives because He is merciful, though that is, of course, also true. It says He forgives when we confess because He is just. In other words, it would be unjust of God to deny us forgiveness because Jesus has earned our acceptance. This morning, friends, Christ has earned grace, and He has earned forgiveness, and He has earned reconciliation, and He has earned peace with God. And God, with great love, extends that gift to us this morning. Yes, it's free to you, and yes, it's free to me, but it was not free to Christ. Christ has made a transaction that has purchased our forgiveness. And so this morning as our worship team comes forward, I know that some of you are here and you're saying, you know what? 
I've been saved and in a relationship with Jesus Christ for quite some time, but this really makes me appreciate it all the more. And that's, that's great. I, I think that it is so helpful when we come to realize the anger of God and the, the price that Jesus paid to, to purchase our salvation. It's a good thing to be reminded of how grateful and thankful we should be for our salvation. Others of you perhaps have never received that gift of grace. You've never received Jesus' forgiveness, and you've never received it because you've never asked for it. This morning, if you need that gift of grace, we would invite you to come forward as we sing this song. Please be standing.